Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, public health reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Public health. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor editor of the Herald Times. And today on Noon Edition, we're going to talk about no-till agriculture, which is a method of farming where crops are grown year to year without disturbing or tilling the soil. While traditional tilling is effective to control weeds, it reduces the farm's long-term productivity by breaking up organic matter and natural clods in the soil. Preserving the soil with the no-till method helps to retain water and keep the soil fertile. However, a recent IUPUI study found the no-till method is not effective in preventing nitrate leaching, a common cause of water pollution. We're going to be talking today to two guests here in the studio. Uh, Lishan Wang is assistant professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at IUPUI and was instrumental in this study. And also Jordan Seager, Sager is a director of the Division of Soil Conservation in the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. You can't uh, give us a call today. We're in a, a new studio and so we aren't taking calls, but you can still follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. So welcome to both of you. Li Shen, thanks for being here in the studio with us. It's a great pleasure to be here. All right, and Jordan, are you there? I am, hey. in Indianapolis. All Good right. Afternoon. I thought you were there. Good to, good to hear from you, too. So I want to start with, with Li Shen. So this study that uh, just came out from IUPUI, uh, can you give us uh, some of the, uh, you know, the highlights? What, what exactly did you find out? Sure. So basically what we do, uh, our objective is try to look at what the impact of no-till on uh, nitrogen loss from the agricultural field. Just like, uh, Bob, you mentioned earlier, uh, water pollution is a worldwide issue. So agriculture is one of the big players for the agriculture for the agricultural pollution, uh, for the water pollution. So we want to basically control that to minimize that. And the no-till has been promoted as a one of the conservation practice. And so we just try to take a look why the no-till has a great impact on the nutrient uh, leaching loss reduction. Mm-hmm. So... But what we found after synthesizing hundreds of data points across the globe, uh, what we found is uh, no-till actually didn't uh, decrease the nutrient leaching from agriculture field. So mm-hmm. it's, it's a little bit surprising. But when we think about the impact of no-till on soil properties, that's not surprising. And we can talk about that in detail. Sure. Okay. Jordan, um, what is the implication of this overall? So, Bob... Indiana farmers utilize no-till for a variety of different reasons. Uh, And no-till, as you mentioned in your opening there, really offers multiple benefits, uh, really including but not limited to reduced soil erosion, reduced fuel use, reduced time, reduced labor, uh, reduced equipment, reduced inputs, organic matter loss, uh, and runoff, and and reduced uh, costs you know, really uh, benefiting the bottom line. So we've understood for a while now that no-till alone uh, will not solve all of our water quality challenges. Uh, That's why here in Indiana uh, and really across the Midwest, farmers are using a systems approach to conservation where they actually layer infield practices like conservation tillage or no-till with nutrient management, with cover crops, which Indiana is number one, by the way, in, and precision ag. They layer those infield practices with edge-of-field practices like filter strips. Um, and together, you know, that's where we really see Indiana farmers going is that systems approach uh, that we agree that one specific practice, like no-till alone, uh, won't solve all our water quality challenges. 
But that's why we're working on this layered system approach here in Indiana. All right, Jordan, I'm going to ask you to define a few of those terms for us that are, are not um, maybe as knowledgeable about, about agriculture. You talked about precision ag. You talked about filter strips. Um, can you go be a little uh, more specific about those things? Yeah, absolutely. So on the infield side of things, uh, we have conservation tillage, which uh, the extreme version of that is no-till. Uh, conservation tillage is just leaving some residue or old crop on the ground. In this state, it's typically a cor- uh, corn uh, stalks or soybean stalks. No-till is uh, not touching that ground at all with any type of tillage equipment. Cover crops, uh, I believe we're mentioning this study, are actually uh, a, a living cover that's planted after the cash crop is harvested uh, over the fall and winter to protect the ground. Uh, and then farmers will actually go in and plant into that cover crop in the coming spring. They don't harvest that cover crop. It's there for really soil health and water quality reasons. And Indiana is, is number one in terms of acreage of cover crops that we grow here uh, across the fall and winter. And we feel that's a pretty strong indicator of the other good practices that farmers in, here in Indiana are using. A precision agriculture is really what's come um, probably as the biggest change in ag in the last 15, 20 years. This is employing GPS technology and really spoon-feeding precise amounts of nutrients or herbicide, fertilizer, um, and even seed uh, directly to a crop, uh, managing not a field by acre but down to the square inch. And this really allows farmers to be efficient, uh, so helping, you know, their input costs, but it also benefits the environment because they're putting the exact amount of fertilizer or herbicide right where it's needed when it's needed. Uh, And then the edge of field practices I mentioned there, a filter strip is basically a strip of of grass, uh, warm season, cool season grasses that exist between a crop field and a river or other water body. And just as its name implies, that filter strip acts to filter anything that's coming off of a crop field before it reaches a type of waterway. All right. Thanks. Thanks for that. So, Li Shen, in your uh, study, you know, you talk about how no-till is not enough just to do it alone. And Jordan talks about how there is sort of a, um, a multiple approach here in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do you think? Uh, farmers in the agriculture industry will learn from this study, and what do you what do you think they'll take from it? So I think the yeah, just like uh, Jordan already mentioned. So basically, we do understand uh, no-till may not be sufficient. But when you re- when you read the primary literature for studies, some study will find okay, no-till will actually increase the nutrient uh, loss. Some will actually find new- no-till decrease the nutrient loss, and some study will find there is no res- uh, impact of no-till on nutrient loss. So there are kind of mixed results out there. Mm-hmm. So basically, what we try to do is uh, we use a, a pretty powerful statistic technique called meta-analysis. So we can synthesize all the available literature data and we can look at them as a whole. We can look at the overall trend. We can look at how that impact will co-vary with other factors such as soil texture, such as uh, different type of farming you do, uh, mm-hmm. different type of uh, things like uh, uh, cover crop and things like that. So you basically can uh, tease out some of the factors. Uh, hopefully that can help explain some of the opposite results in the literature. So I guess the key thing for us is uh, we find the overall trend, but also we can find factors people can actually uh, use to say, okay, as what kind of specific condition, uh, uh, what kind of impact will be. Mm-hmm. So can you uh, talk a little bit more about that? So what kind of factors might be um, more conducive to no-till? Sure. Yeah. So, for example, what we found overall, uh, no-till actually doesn't really help with uh, nitrogen uh, loss from the agriculture field. But there are exceptions. For example, what we found is uh, for the uh, when we divided the climate region into dry land and non-dry land, what we found is uh, in dry land, actually, no-till is pretty good at uh, reducing the nutrient loss. Mm-hmm. And also, 
what we found is uh, uh, for organic farmer, uh, actually they are not very good in terms of the nutrient loss, uh, uh, nutrient loss from agriculture field. Also, I, I want to emphasize is that when we talk about the nutrient loss, there are two di uh, major different pathways. One is on the surface, so we call it surface runoff. Mm -hmm. So the other is a vertical transport is basically leaching. So what we found is uh, actually for the uh, surface runoff, uh, no-till actually, uh, the nutrient loss from no-till field is actually comparable with the uh, conventional tillage field. Mm -hmm. But for the leaching part, actually, that's the part we found. No-till actually has a higher uh, nutrient loss from the leaching pathway. Okay. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. Let me remind you, you can't uh, give us a call today, but you certainly can still um, weigh in with what we're doing on the program. Um, our, uh, we're on Twitter, of course, at Noon Edition, and also you can send your questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Uh, Jordan Sager is the director of the Division of Soil Conservation at the Indiana State Department of Agriculture. He's in Indianapolis. So, Jordan, um, you just heard what, what Lee Shin was having to say. I mean, I, I guess I want to ask you, will this – do you think this study is going to have an impact on what Hoosier farmers are going to do going forward? So our, our concern from the conservation community with these type of meta-analysis or really desktop science exercises is they can at times attempt to paint a broad brush with the conclusion. And uh, these, these studies, um, you know, are, are great if if you don't want to get on a farm or get your boots dirty, but at the end of the day, they really don't help to answer any of the real questions that farmers have. And if taken out of context, they, they can be damaging, you know, to the environment. And really, if you, you get down on the weeds of it, about 76 other studies uh, were looked at in this meta-analysis. And, and from what I was able to glean, uh, those 76 studies have little to no connection to Indiana. Um, and that's where some of the concern with painting a broad brush uh, on a topic that is very geographic-specific. Uh, the doctor mentioned, you know, some studies showed uh, reduction, some did not, some showed nothing. Uh, a lot of this uh, nitrate issue is driven by rainfall. And that is very geographic-specific, and then you throw in soil types and that sort of thing. So, you know, really, Indiana farmers, I mentioned with this systems approach, uh, the innovative Hoosier farmer is really on the leading edge uh, of this systems approach, and that's where they need the research to catch up to them uh, to help answer the questions that they have and address the challenges that they're facing as those early adopters. Um, and Dr. Bob Barr at IUPUI has done some really great work in this area, hands-on work uh, here with farmers uh, around the Indianapolis area uh, and working with those early adopters. All right. I want to ask Lee Shen to, to respond to that. So the 76 other studies that, that he mentioned, are those relative to or relevant to Indiana? And do you think your research is relevant nationwide or in just specific geographic areas? So, yeah, I actually, yeah, first I want to emphasize we are not really saying no-till is not good. That's mm -hmm. definitely not our intention. So as a researcher, right, we try to find objective answers. So we basically, like, make a conclusion based on what we saw. So I agree with Jordan. You know, you can't actually, like, uh, using... Uh, very broad conclusions to apply every corner of the world, that's for sure. So for our study, I, I would say that is a global scale study. So we basically, for the, uh, for the meta-analysis, you basically look for data whenever available. So basically we you know, use all the powerful search engines. We will actually like look for all the available data, we just synthesize them. Sure, you know, there will be some places has more data than others. But, you know, you are looking at the overall trend. Mm -hmm. So I guess uh, that's the key. So it's not like we are saying no-till is not good. That's, I, I think uh, I, I don't want, like, anybody have the impression. Actually, like, one of the co-authors uh, in this team, uh, Dr. Uh, Pierre Andre Jensen, he, he is a researcher, has been doing the, the research about the benefits of no-till for a very long time. So our research is not really say anything about the 
biasing about no-till. It's really we want to make sure we understand no-till is not the solution for everything. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Jordan, I want to go back to you, and and I, we, I know we mentioned this before, but but I would like for you to talk more about the benefits of no-till farming. When did it start? When did no-till start being a, in, used in common practice? And you know, why is it a, 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 a something that a lot of farmers would like to do? A great question, Bob. No-till really started in the 1980s, and really that went back to um, the coming on the market of some really good weed control technology, because uh, in the past, tillage, cultivation, the moldboard plow, think about the dust bowl, uh, that's how weeds were controlled. But with new technologies that started coming in around 1980, uh, that's when no-till uh, started taking off and farmers realized they could start parking the plows to get all these different benefits. Uh, here in Indiana, uh, we've actually um, started measuring no-till adoption in 1990, and we, as the what we call the Indiana Conservation Partnership, uh, we measure that on a county basis, countywide basis, uh, every year now. And we've actually we're pretty fortunate that we've got one of the best data sets, as we understand the country, to look at where no-till adoption is happening. Uh, we can say that since 1990, when we started measuring this, we actually saw a 466% increase in no-till acres in Indiana. Uh, and, again, we really think that goes back to uh, the conservation ethic, the environmental stewardship ethic of the Indiana farmer. Well, I grew up in Indiana around a lot of farms, and, I, you know, I recognize what – you know, I think I would know a tiller if I saw one, but, you know, what, what is different about no-till farming? What's it, what's it look like? So it takes a higher level of management. It's not easy, Bob, mm-hmm. and that's why not everybody does it. Um, it takes a specialized planter, uh, especially when you're planting corn. You've got to have a, a setup on uh, to get the seed in the ground in a high residue or a high crop residue system, we call it. So it takes a higher level of management, uh, and that's why not everybody does it. But um, what it looks like is is if it's a, a cornfield that just got harvested, corn stalks typically still sticking out of the ground. Uh, and corn has more residue, more crop residue out there. That'll stay all the way till spring planting. When, based on a crop rotation, likely soybeans will go in. And on a soybean field, if that just got harvested or in process, you'll see the stalks of soybeans still out there, typically still attached uh, with decaying root systems in the ground. Um, it doesn't look uh, uh, as clean, maybe, as a, uh, you know, a tilled-up garden uh, just with bare dirt. But from a conservation standpoint, uh, the more residue out there, uh, the more food that residue can provide to earthworms, to microorganisms, beneficial um, insects and beneficial microorganisms actually living in the soil. Um, so it doesn't look as pretty, but there's a, a ton of good benefits. And what we do quite often, and we'll do over the winter, we'll do rainfall simulators. So we'll go out to some of these no-till fields and conventionally till fields and simulate a large rain event. And we'll bring members from the public and, and other farmers to come out and see firsthand uh, the runoff that actually occurs uh, on conventionally tilled systems uh, versus no-till field. So you mentioned before, and I, I, I really like this approach, when you said you talked about how you know, there are a lot of major questions that farmers have. It, you, you sort of – forgive me if I'm wrong on this, but you sort of implied that, that what's happening with no-till and the, the leaching issue may not be one of the high-priority questions that Indiana farmers have now. Is that fair to say? You're correct. Yeah, and I, I use the term, I think, early adopter or farmers on the leading edge, and, and that's what we've got that are employing no-till plus cover crops plus nutrient and pest management plus edge of field uh, controls. And, you know, they have different questions. 
um, that, uh, again, I, we thoroughly feel the research needs to help catch up to. Um, and, you know, they are, are out there kind of experimenting, trying different things, different planter setups, uh, different ways to seed cover crops with an airplane or seeding them off of a combine, different types of species of cover crops, different mixes. Uh, they're, they're kind of in the Wild West trying new things because that's the ethic they have. Um, and the water quality monitoring research and other types of research that's associated with those newer stack systems approach is really the need that I hear from the farmers that I work with. Okay. Um, Lishan, those, is Indiana, that, as far as your studies are concerned, mm-hmm. is Indiana unique in this area? Do you think there are other parts of the country that need your research more than Jordan might? Uh, Indiana is unique, just like Jordan already mentioned. We are actually pr- pretty progressive in terms of environmental protection from the farmers. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the no-till uh, adaptation rate at the national scale, it's about probably 25%. And uh, Indiana actually has, uh, I think, around 35 percent. It's uh, signif- significantly higher than the national average. Mm-hmm. And also, when you look at the, the global average, it's less than 10 percent. So mm-hmm. I guess uh, if you think about that way, actually, we are doing much better than many parts mm-hmm. of the so world. So Indiana's a, a hit on that. Okay. Right. We're going we're gonna to take a short break now. Um, we're about halfway through the program. We're talking about uh, no-till agriculture in Indiana and elsewhere, and a recent study that came out from the Department of Earth Sciences at IUPUI. You can't call us today, but if you have questions, you can send us a question, news at indianapublicmedia.org, and you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers south-central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg from the Herald Times, and I am flying solo today here on Noon Edition, but I have two great guests with us. Uh, Jordan Sager is in Indianapolis. He's the director of the Division of Soil Conservation with the Indiana State Department of Agriculture, and Lee Shen Wong is an assistant professor in the Department of Earth Sciences at IUPUI, and we're talking about uh, no-till agriculture and some and a recent study that Lee Shen was involved with at IUPUI. Um, as I said, you can send us a note at news at indianapublicmedia.org or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So, Lee Shen, I wanted to ask you about uh, you know, how you decided to do this study, the, the history of no-till and the, you know, your motivation for studying this and, and why you got involved with this. Sure. Uh I'm, uh, my training is eco-hydrology, so basically that's a field of study uh, the interaction between vegetation, uh, hydro- uh, water cycle, and the soil process. So we study the three interaction. So basically, when, when I move uh, to uh, Indiana, we know agriculture is, uh, is a very important component of, uh, uh, of uh, vegetation, dy- vegetation dynamics here. And also we know uh, water pollution is a closely associated with agriculture. So I guess because the location I'm in, because of specialty I'm in, I studied 
uh, I start interest in uh, agriculture impact on water pollution. How do we minimize the water pollution? So that's mm-hmm. the kind of motivation. What I'm uh, starting from this project. Well, let me just follow up with a great big general question. But I, you know, farming has become such a uh, so much more complex in in recent years with a lot of advances in, in equipment and technology, but also in in herbicides and and in uh, you know pesticides and those kind of things. I mean, how how much uh, greater has this has the need become to study you know the pollution issues that that come with farming? So you, uh, Bob, I just want to make sure I understand your question. Yeah. You're thinking uh-huh. about whether the water pollution problem becoming a bigger problem? Yes, yeah, that's basically it. It's a long long way to ask that, <laughs> but yes. So I. I would say that's probably true. Although I guess uh, with all the uh, of the conservation uh, agricultural practice, so the increase uh, is not as bad as we saw. But because of intensity is higher, and a lot of uh, herbicide pesticide has been used. So and also because no-till tend to be nutrient efficient uh, agriculture system, but we still don't have a good way to actually have a good recommendation for the new nutrient level, like fertilizer rate. Mm -hmm. So that means you maybe have more leftover nutrients in the agriculture field. So all take together, sure, the problem probably will get a little worse. Mm -hmm. But as the other side, we do have a conservation practice has been promoted. So that's actually can counterpart some of them. Yeah, I want to make sure that uh, you know our listeners know, and Jordan knows that you're not uh, against no-till farming in any way. <laughs> no. uh, can you talk about the benefits to no-till? Sure. I guess uh, it's probably better to have a historical contact. Yeah. We all know, like uh, when we do agriculture. Uh, Plowing is almost social with uh, agriculture in the most of the human history. But the problem for agriculture, uh, the, for plowing, is really the soil erosion. So, like Jordan already mentioned, because when you think about from the geological, like a long time scale, soil formation is very uh, uh, slow process. So, it depends on the climate. Soil formation, one inch of soil could take millions of years to form. So the big problem for plowing is the soil loss. So because we have the big machine for plowing, big machine for tractor, so the the soil loss, the number is dramatic. So just in the uh, corn board, uh, in just in the Midwest alone, we know the soil loss is probably uh, per decade is uh, around on the order of inch. Uh, one decade, probably an inch of soil get lost. Mm-hmm. So it didn't sound much, but when you have a, a long time tillage, mm-hmm. you can imagine how much soil actually got lost away. And also people don't think actually soil is non-renewable resources. If you lost them, you lost just because they take a very long time to form. Mm-hmm. So that's actually the motivation for no-till to become uh, in practice in uh, er, uh, late 70 and early 90. So because people try to conserve the, the mm-hmm. So like we mentioned earlier, the key thing for no-till is you don't really disturb the soil. So that will keep the soil structure intact. So that's actually the key thing for for no-till benefits. Because if you don't disturb the soil structure, the water holding capacity of no-till actually is uh, very high compared to conventional soil. Mm -hmm. That means during the if during the period without rainfall, that's very important for plants to grow. And also because you don't really harvest the plant residue, leave them on the ground, they can decompose. So they actually, they can release nutrients back to the soil, can increase the nutrient, uh, nu- uh, the fertil- fertility level of the soil. And also because you don't move the plant parts away, they actually can, the soil can, can basically fix carbon. So increase the carbon sequestration, you release less carbon to the atmosphere. That's actually good for the, for the environment. And also because you have the crop on the ground, you increase the roughness of the, of the surface. That basically means you can reduce the surface water runoff. That's very important when you think about the nutrient leaching, uh, nutrient loss uh, pathways. Mm-hmm. So all these factors definitely there. They are very important for our environment. Mm-hmm. I definitely think we should try to promote no-till as a whole. But at the same time, we have to be realistic about what no-till can do and what no-till doesn't do. 
Jordan Sager's uh, in Indianapolis. He's with us from the uh, the director of the Division of Soil Conservation. So, Jordan, I, I, you know, we, before we went to break, you were talking about, you know, we were talking about some of the major questions that farmers have, and you know, you were you were going fairly fast for me talking about some of the things that farmers are really interested in learning about. Could you pick out one or two of the of the the big big questions facing Hoosier farmers today that you would would like to get more, uh, you know, more research on and more knowledge about? Absolutely. Great question. And and I'll go back to cover crops, uh, which I talked a little bit about more earlier. Uh, in, in Indiana, uh, we're really second only to Texas in the amount of acres that we plant to cover crops every fall and winter, uh, something we're pretty proud of. And as as we've led that way, um, Indiana farmers are experimenting with different types of cover crops, so different species, some that actually fix nitrogen in the air and put it in the soil as a fertilizer, uh, some like big radishes that kind of do some natural types of tillage and attract earthworms and can soak up any uh, leftover fertilizer. So there's a lot of different uh, questions just revolving around cover crops in terms of the right species to use. Um, in Indiana, in the north, we don't have quite as long as a growing season as in the south. So they actually use airplanes a lot of times to fly cover crops into standing crops up north. And there's questions on how much seed to use, when is the right time to plant those, but the big questions come back to what kind of water quality benefits can be had when you include cover crops in a no-till system with good nutrient management. What are the economic returns whenever you use cover crops in a no-till system? What type of yield benefits, if any, can you get when using cover crops within a no-till system? So those are some of the big questions just as it relates to the water quality and economics and yield with some of these new conservation system approaches. Well, I, I have to ask, uh, you know, one of those uh, very simple questions as a person that, as I said, I grew up around farming, but I was never involved in it. So when you are planting cover crops, these different kinds of cover crops, you mentioned a, a big radish, I think you said? Right. Yes, sir. Um, so, are these crops that are also harvested at the end of a season, or, or what? No, they are not okay. considered cash crops. Okay. So, farmers are planting those uh, for the sake of building their soil health. In many cases, improving water quality, and I would say hoping to see some type of yield bumps as well. And you know, average around twenty to thirty dollars an acre is what it would cost in seed uh, with a few more dollars for the labor to, to seed those. But they are not harvesting those. They're for the good of the soil. So they're an investment, right, essentially? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. A conservation investment, yes, right. sir. Okay. Li Shen? Can I add uh, one thing? So, yeah, Jordan is absolutely right. So most farmers, they don't harvest radish uh, as a cash crop. But from what I heard, actually, there are uh, – some farmers actually they do right now around Indianapolis area because uh, for radish depends on the culture. Some cultures they do eat radish regularly. So because you know if you eat you can actually sell to somebody. So actually some farmers I heard they do actually harvest uh, radish at the end of growing season. They sell to the local market. Mm -hmm. Are you familiar with that, Jordan? Uh, that would be a very rare instance. What okay. we hear almost uh, a lot more than that is for cattle. <laughs> Sometimes uh, if a farmer has fencing around his cover crop field, he or she might choose to graze their cattle, uh, and it can be a really good food source for beef cattle. Mm -hmm. All right, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about no-till agriculture, and uh, we're going to spread out into a few other agricultural issues here in the last 20 minutes of our program. If you uh, want to get in touch with us today, you're going to have to email us uh, or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, or you can uh, you can send us a question uh, to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Uh, Lee Shen, I, I want to ask you about IU's program uh, and the IU 
PUI program of earth sciences and mm -hmm. your connection with farming because I think it would be um, silly not to mention the fact that Purdue is always considered the, the university that, that Hoosier farmers would go to and mm -hmm. would be the leader in, in uh, research and development and in, in pretty much anything that has to do with farming in Indiana. Um, how does IU's program not compare to Purdue, but how do you mm -hmm. complement what, what's done at Purdue? That's a great question. I guess uh, I may not have a great answer. <laughs> so yeah, we are actually a much smaller program compared to Purdue because Purdue is a land-grant university. So the mission of land-grant university is um, working, one of the mission is working with farmers to have, you know, to solve the real world farming problems. But for us, we actually have the same, same similar mission. For example, several uh, faculty members in our department, uh, including including myself, are interested in agriculture-related issues. So I'm not only doing research on uh, like water pollution issue, I'm also looking at the impact of drought on agriculture yield and how that co-vary with different climate factors, uh, land management factors. So I guess we are not uh, really distinct, different from Purdue program, but we we work with them, we connect with them, but we also, you know, do independent research. Mm -hmm. So I guess, uh, yeah, that is just a different, just like when you think about other universities, you know, in different states, they have multiple universities work on mm -hmm. like, uh, similar topics, but from different angle. Yeah, Jordan, sort of a, an offshoot of that question is, as complex as farming has become in recent years and is, uh, you know, basically high technology, how? What kind of a, a relationship does uh, does the state, the Division of Soil Conservation, and the Department of Agriculture in general have, you know, with the universities around the state? And what are you looking to them for? Uh, I would say a very good relationship, and and the more the merrier when it comes to <laughs> the experts uh, that are focusing research on really all aspects of agriculture. So. Uh, we obviously work very closely with Purdue, our land-grant university, uh, work very closely with IU, with Notre Dame, with Manchester University, and much smaller groups out there um, on uh, many different segments of agriculture. So uh, the relationship is great. I know we're always uh, building that relationship. Uh, for example, Purdue University uh, under the leadership of, of Dean Ackridge and Dr. Jason Henderson there, have added numerous resources uh, when it comes to soil and water conservation expertise and staffing. Um, and really, uh, I'm a little biased here sitting in Indiana, but uh, the resources that have been added to Purdue University, I would say, um, uh, far exceed those across the country when it comes to specific soil and water conservation-related research. So we're very proud of all our universities that are engaged in agriculture here and looking to get more engaged in ag and, and water quality and UAB systems and everything else, um, all the different technologies that, that farmers are utilizing today. Lishan? Hey, Bob, I just want to add one thing. So in our uh, university, IUPUI, we have a research center called the Center for Earth and Environmental Science. We call it SEAS. That's actually a very good uh, center for outreach and research in terms of agriculture-related issues. Uh, Bob Bard, the person uh, mm -hmm. uh, Jordan just mentioned earlier, actually is a research scientist in that center. And the, one of the co-authors uh, in our paper is actually director of the center. So through the center, we actually have a pretty close working relationship with many farmers close uh, to Indianapolis. Mm -hmm. That's the Center for Earth and Environmental Science, is it? Yes. yes. Okay. We have a, a question that's come in from Twitter. The question is, is there a better approach to no-till farming uh, than uh, Roundup or glyphosate? Is that the, the term for it? Do you know what this question might mean? That's, that's what's come to me. Uh, I can chime in on that. Yeah, yeah Roundup or glyphosate, which would be the generic mm -hmm. uh, term for Roundup, is basically uh, an herbicide that is used uh, within uh, a lot of corn and soybean systems, which uh, allow for less tillage. Uh, so not to get in the weeds of it, uh, but a Roundup-ready crop or a glyphosate-ready crop will be resistant to that herbicide and all the other weeds around it will be killed by it. 
So it allows the farmer in a very efficient mechanism uh, for weed control without pulling out a moldboard plow or uh, large tillage equipment as was used uh, like during the Dust Bowl days. So there's different uh, systems out there. We've mentioned cover crops a lot, and uh, there's many different species of cover crops that actually can act to suppress weeds. So think about a thick uh, mat of, of cover crop actually between two rows of corn that uh, allows very little sunlight to penetrate the soil. Uh, those cover crops can be a, a very good way to actually control weeds uh, really in the fall, winter, and, and even into the cash crop. So we're unable to take your phone calls today, but you still can ask your questions about Indiana agriculture and specifically no-till agriculture by uh, writing us uh, an email question, news at indianapublicmedia.org, or by following us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Uh, Jordan, once again, I'm, I'm sort of intrigued by the way farming has changed over the years and how, like I said, how scientific and technical it's gotten, but also just, you know, how, how you know, the family farms seem to have changed into something a little different. And, you know, is it, could you talk about just the sort of the evolution of farming in Indiana, maybe in the last couple of decades? Has it, has it changed much? Uh, the technology, as we've talked extensively about today, yes, has changed. Uh, the equipment that has changed, uh, the markets, the challenges, all that has, has changed and evolved over time. Uh, the majority of Indiana farms and really farms across the country remain family-owned. They may be a little bigger, uh, more acreage or more livestock than they had traditionally, uh, but a lot of that is just due to some of the economic pressures and, and the margins that exist in agriculture, whether you're in livestock or row crops. Um, farmers uh, need ground. Farmers need, need livestock barns to be, uh, to be able to, to survive in a lot of cases. And when you look right now, uh, at crop prices, uh, historically low corn and soybean prices. Uh, it, it's tough economic times in the farm community. Um, and, you know, what, what we point to to make back the connection to conservation and the ethic that we're very proud of here in Indiana is that in this down farm economy, low crop prices, uh, this last year in 2016, we actually saw a record $13 million investment in new conservation systems from Indiana farmers. Uh, and we think that is just extraordinary, uh, a record investment in a down farm economy. And we're able to show that that investment actually kept 7,000 train cars of sediment and seven train cars of nitrogen on the land and actually out of the Mississippi River system. Um, so Farms have changed. Uh, technology has changed. Farms may be getting a little bigger, but at the end of the day, uh, it's families who are operating these farms. This might be a little uh, a little off topic, but since I have both of you here, I want to ask about just the the uh, idea of of food security and of you know just you know this is a, a macro question just about the political climate in the world and the fact that there are places where it's really hard to grow food and there are other places where it's maybe easier to grow food and how I, I think people, a lot of people, I'll speak for myself, you know, we don't, I think I don't think that often about if something's happening and somewhere else, a long way away from Indiana or even the United States, it may not have that much of an effect on who's your farmers. But um, I wonder if I'm, if I'm right. How's the international um, economy and the international scene sort of tied into farming in Indiana? Lishan, do you? Sure, I can start. Okay. So, yeah, that, that's a great question. So because uh, food security definitely closely related to many factors. So right now, as a national level, people have been discussing, for example, what's the relationship between food security, water security, and energy security. So this is actually closely linked loop. So that's uh, and uh, because we grow agriculture, we need water. So Indiana typically is doesn't famous for lacking of water. We have a, about like a, 
1,000 milliliter per year of rainfall, which is sufficient for crop to grow. But at the same time, we do know drought has been coming more and more frequent uh, worldwide. Indiana is not an exception. For example, we have uh, two big drought events in 2007 and 2012, especially the one in 2012, which hammered the agriculture dramatically. So that actually does impact the, the food security. So you have mm-hmm. to basically think about how water impacts that. At the same time, you know, energy also linked to that. You know, when you think about uh, no-till farming, one of the advantages is, is actually you use less fuel to operate the big plowing machine, you actually use less fuel cost. But if it doesn't worth it economically, why people do that? So basically, that's all like linked together. You have to think of them as a whole. Mm-hmm. And it definitely will change from other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. Jordan? Yeah, I, you know, the American farmer not only feeds the United States, and with that, we're fortunate to have some of the lowest in, in food costs in the world. Uh, spend the, the least amount of our paycheck on, on safe, affordable food. But it may be cliche, but it's true. The Indian farmer not only uh, feeds the United States, but the world. And and that is the case, especially as we see a growing population, the demand for food, the demand for, uh, for protein, especially in Asia, we see exploding. Um, and for the fact of the matter, it, it, it is true that an Indiana farmer is tied to the world because they're tied to the world market, uh, the world uh, grain, soybean, and corn markets. So demand in, in China, demand across the world for, for soybeans or grain or protein, uh, that affects an Indiana farmer at the end of the day. Um, and as far as, you know, weather, uh, we we have our fair share of that. We had our 2012 drought, and and a lot of these conservation systems that we employ uh, are are designed to be more resilient to those extremes, whether it's heavy rain or, or drought. So these systems we feel make the Indiana farmer and the American farmer more resilient, and allow them to be more competitive. Uh, on the global market for, for which they, they sell their, their corn and soybeans and even livestock onto. Um, we may think of Indiana as, as a landlocked state, but the fact of the matter is a large portion of our border is the Ohio River and with uh, a Great Lake Michigan to our north. And on the Ohio River and on Lake Michigan, we have large ports, and those ports actually move uh, a large amount of Indiana ag product, being corn and soybeans. Uh, eventually, that ends up down in the Mississippi River Basin, the Gulf, and gets exported across the world. Uh, so an Indiana farmer uh, in whatever county you're in the state uh, is definitely playing a part in, in helping to feed the world. The world. Well, I w- wanted to ask about that. I think, if I remember right, there's a plans for a third port now, right? A fourth port. Fourth actually. port. Okay. Okay. So that and that that is good news for Indiana farmers, I assume. It's one more option for them uh, to sell grain, uh, increase market, uh, increase some competitiveness. So yes, absolutely, okay. that's a positive for the Indiana farmer. All right, we have just a few more minutes to go, and I want to sort of bring us back to where we started and. Uh, Li Shen Wang, uh, you and your colleagues did this study, and I, I want you to I want to go back to what you hope people will take away from the new information that you found from the study that you did uh, of bringing together you know all this data that was already out there and trying to come to a, a, a new or, or a different just trying to come to a conclusion of, of what all this data meant. Okay. So before I go that, I think maybe it's important I want to point out uh, the mechanism of uh, nutrient loss from the no-till field. So with all the environmental benefits, no-till highs, but there are definitely some uh, 
shortcomings of a no-till in terms of uh, their impact on the nutrient leaching. One example would be stratification. So basically that means you have a very highly concentrated uh, nutrient on the soil surface, about inch or two also. So that's because you don't disturb the soil. Over time, soil become more and more compacted. So you have a high concentration on the surface. Mm-hmm. So another is a micropore formation. So micropore basically means the small tunnels inside the soil. So because you don't disturb the disturb the soil, the plant roots when they decompose, they will leave the tubing on the in the soil. And also because no till they actually promote soil health, they make the microbes and the soil animals very happy. For example, earthworms, they will actually can live a couple feet in no-till soil. So they actually make a lot of micropore as well. So which is not necessarily a bad thing for plants, but when you think about the nutrient leaching, if you have a lot of micropores, so that potentially lead, will uh, lead to the nutrient vertical movement very fast than uh, conventional soil. So that's actually what we think the major reasons we saw there is a bigger leaching from uh, uh, from no-till soil compared to conventional till. Okay, thank so, you. So, yeah, oh, sorry. No, no, go ahead. I guess the, the take-home take home message back to your question, I really think is uh, we, we are thinking no-till definitely is great conservation practice. We definitely should promote for that. But in terms of the nutrient leaching or uh, nutrient loss as aspect, what we think is uh, basically our message is new no-till itself is not sufficient. We have to basically cover with other management style, such as the cover crop, as Jordan has already mentioned. Right. Jordan, two minutes to uh, wrap up. So um, what do you hope people do and don't take away from the study? Yeah, I, I just want to thank the listeners, and it's been a good discussion. You know, I would say that uh, really no matter where you live or, or what you do, uh, we can all help to improve water quality, whether we're, we're farmers or suburbanites or urbanites. And we'll just throw out, if any of the listeners would like to learn more about conservation and water quality efforts in their watershed, uh, they can just do a simple search of Indiana Nutrient Reduction Strategy. That's uh, Indiana Nutrient Reduction Strategy. And from there, you can find what watershed you're in and what efforts uh, are happening in that area, how to get involved uh, in some different workshops, field days, events, that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, again, I would say that uh, the the message is right, that no-till alone will not solve all of our water quality challenges. No-till has come a long way in reducing sediment, uh, allowing farmers to retain uh, their land, um, but we here in Indiana and the farmers we're fortunate enough to work with understand that systems approach, and that's what they're on the leading edge of. All right. I want to thank you again, Jordan Sager, for being here with us today. Jordan is the uh, Indiana State Department of Agriculture Director of Soil Conservation. Also with us today has been Lee Shen Wong, who is with the IUPUI Department of Earth Sciences. For our producer, Angelo Batista, intern Alex Graham, engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. Fiber Internet, HD, and digital IPTV in Southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.